Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to guide us and show us what you'd want us to see through this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Chronicles chapter 7. Hopefully I'm going to make it through till chapter 10, maybe into chapter 10. I don't, we'll see. <laughs> That's ambitious goal. Um, this section of the, of the genealogy was sourced by some other source document because here we're going to have, uh, it's more like the format of numbers where we end up having so many people in each family where we haven't seen that before. So whoever wrote this compiled through multiple genealogies <laughs> as they compiled this. So we're going to be looking at starting at chapter 7, uh, verse 1. Now the sons of Issachar were Tola and Pua and Jazub and Shimram, four. The sons of Tola, Uzi and Rephariah and Jerael and Jamai and Jibsham and Shemuel, heads of their father's house. To wit of Tula, Tula, they were valiant men of might in their generation whose number in the days of David was 22,600. And the sons of Uzi and Isra Ha'a, the sons of Isra Ha'a, Michael and Obadiah and Joel and Ishia, five and all them chief men. And with them by their generations after the house of their fathers were bands of soldiers of war, 36,000, for they had many wives and sons. And their brethren among all the families of Issachar were valiant men of might, reckoned in all their generation, all their genealogies, 87,000. So here we have Issachar. What we're told about Issachar is they were mighty warriors. They were, the, they were a group of ones that liked to fight and were, were counted on to battle. And by the time that he's writing this, there were 87,000 of them. All right, sons of Benjamin. The sons of Benjamin in verse 6 were Bela, Bekur, and Jedidiel, three. The sons of Baal were Be'ela, were Esbon, Uzi, Uziel, and Jeremoth, and Iri, five heads of the house of their fathers, mighty men of valor that were reckoned by their genealogies, 22,034. And the sons of Bechar were Zimrah and Joash and Eliezer and Elionai and Omri and Jeremoth and Abaha and Anathroth and Alameth. All these, all these are the sons of Bekor and the number of them in their genealogy by their generations, heads of their house, of their fathers and mighty men of valor was 20,200. And the sons of Jediel, Bilhan, the sons of Bilhan, Jeush, and Benjamin, and Ehud, and Kinaana, and Zethan, and Tarshish, and Ahishahar. All these were the sons of Jediel, the heads of their fathers, mighty men of valor, were 17,200 soldiers fit to go to war. Shupin also, and Hufin, children of Ur, and Hershin, the sons of Ahur. So here we have the sons of Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest son of Jacob. Uh, 
He was born to Rachel, his favorite wife. And this is the tribe that King Saul is going to come from, is the Benjamites. No, that's not the prophet Obadiah. Remember, these names are common names to them. Not, not necessarily to us, but common names to them. So they reuse their names over and over, just like we reuse our names over and over again. All right. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 13. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, and Guni, or Gunel, Gunai, and Jezer, and Shalom, and the sons of Baha. The sons of, okay, so this is, <laughs> Naphtali has one list. <laughs> He's, you know, one, one line on his family. Uh, the, the tribe of Naphtali is not mentioned very often in the scriptures, period. I mean, they're in there. They're one of the tribes of, De, of uh, Jacob, but they're not listed. They're not populous. They're not known for a lot of things. I'm sure they have their, their, their heroes and everything in their family if we researched it enough, but here in this list they get one, one verse. All right, that's the, the family of Naphtali. The sons of Manasseh were Asriel, whom she bore, that his concubine Amranitis bare Makar, the father of Gilead, and Makar took to wife the sister of Humphen and Shumphen, whose sister's name was Ma'aka. The name of the second was Zelophehad, and Zelophehad had daughters. And Malachi, the wife of Mekar, gave her a son, and she called his name Puresh. And the name of his brother was Shiresh. And his sons were Ulam and Rakem. And the sons of Ulam, Bedan. And these are the sons of Gilead, the sons of Mac Makar, the sons of Manasseh, and his sister Hamoeketh, bear Ishad, and Abielzer, and Mahala, and the sons of Shimadah were Ahanan, and Shechem, and Likhai, and Aniam. So here we have the children of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh is not a son of Jacob, he is the son of Joseph. So when God took the Levites to be his tribe, he gave Joseph a double portion of, of the tribe. So Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, became tribes of Jacob. And that's what Jacob told him. He goes, you no longer have your sons, they're mine. <laughs> and he took, he, he took Joseph's sons and, and ended up having the 12 tribes, not counting Levi, and Joseph gets two tribes to his credit. All right? So this is Manasseh uh, being listed here. Now we go for verse 20, and the sons of Ephraim, Shuthalah, and Bered his son, and Tahath his son, and Elidah his son, and Tohath his son and Zabad his son, and Shuthalah his son, and Ezer, and Eliad, whom the men of Gath 
whom the men of Gath that were born in that land slew because they came down to take away their cattle. And Ephraim their father mourned many days, and his brethren came to comfort him. All right, so here we're starting the story of Ephraim. Ephraim's territory is over by the coast near, near the Philistines. Ephraim, probably Ephraim. I've always called it Ephraim, but Ephraim is... Um, I guess it really depends on how, you're, how, you, how you've heard it said. But Ephraim is probably the right way. I've heard that more often than Ephraim, but I've also heard Ephraim. So. And I'm not quite sure what that little long E would be. So probably E. <laughs> All right. So these families lived near Gath, and Gath came and destroyed them early on and, and conquered them and gave them lots of troubles because the people of Israel never got rid of the Philistines. And Gath is one of the head, head uh, towns of Philistia. And so they, they killed everything. And it says, their father mourned many days. And verse 23 says, and when he went into his wife, she conceived and bare him a son. And he called his name Beriah because it went evil with his house. And his daughter was Sirah who, who built Beth Horan, the Nether, and the Upper, and Uzen Shirab. And Repha was his son, and Resha, and Tela his sons, and Tehan his son, and Lahadan his son, and Amahud his son, Elisha Ma his son, Nun or Nun his son, and Jehoshaphat his son. Here's a place where we start listing some daughters. And it's quite interesting that it says his daughter, uh, who was Shirah, who built Beth Horan, the upper and lower. So his daughter was responsible for developing some town that was, I don't know where that town is, I've never heard of it, but she built a town and established a town. So this is kind of interesting, you know, the women were not totally unknown in the Bible. All right, so I like to bring that out at times, because the women do have some places where they are mentioned and having done great things. We have people like Tamar. We have people like uh, 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 Rahab, you know, Deborah. So there's several, several women of note in the Old Testament. Uh, and this is one of them, even though people really don't know who she is. But this Sherah developed a, t- a built a town in, in the, in the uh, tribe of Ephraim. <laughs> so we have that going on. And verse 28, And their possessions and inhabitants were Bethel, the towns thereof, eastward Naaran, and westward Gezer, and the towns of Shechem, also in the towns thereof unto Gaza, and the towns thereof, and the borders of the children of Manasseh, Beth Shean and her towns, and Tahanak and her towns, and Megiddo and her towns, Dor and her towns, in those dwelt the children of Joseph, the son, the son of Israel. So they had a very large territory when you map out these, these towns. Much of the center area of Israel belonged to Ephraim, half tribe of Manasseh, and then the other half tribe of Manasseh had territory on the eastern side of, of, of Jericho. Okay, now we're going to switch to Asher, the sons of Asher. Imnah, Ishuha, and Ishuai, 
and Beriah and Sarah, Sirah, their sister, and the sons of Beriah, Eber, and Malkiel, whose father was Berzazif, uh, if, zif, zif, vif, vif. <laughs> get the right, get the right letter there. I knew, I knew the Z was not what I wanted. <laughs> vif. And Eber begat Japhlet and Shomer and Holam and Shua, their sister, and the sons of Japhlet, Paska, Pasak, and Bimhal, and Ashvaf, and these are the sons of Japhlet. And the sons of Shamur, Ahi, and Roga, and Zahubab, and Amram. The sons of his brother Elam, Zophath, and Imna, and Shilash, and Amal. And the sons of Zophath were Shula, Shua, and Haranifer, and Shuel, Shual, and Beri, and Imra, and Bezer, and Had and Shammah, and Shimshua, and Ithram, and Beira, and the sons of Jephra, and Jophana, and Pishapava, and Ara, and the sons of Ula were Ara, and Haniel, and Raziah, and these are the children of Asher, the heads of their families, house, choice and mighty men, chiefs of the princes, and the number throughout the genealogy of them that were apt to go to war and battle was 26,000 men. One of the things to note in here again, we see names that may sound familiar, like Eber. This is not the Eber from, from the days after Noah. Okay, so we see various names of these again. These are fairly common names that are on, the, on these lists, even though they're not common to us. So this is hard when you're looking through a list of names saying, well, who was this? Did he match here? And is this the same person? Often, no. <laughs> so how do we know? We'd have to go back and check their families and see who their, who their kids were and make sure that we're on the right, right page. It's a lot of research to be able to match these names up to who they are. All right, so now we've covered the tribes of Israel. Now in chapter 8, we go back to Benjamin. Now we're going to find Benjamin in this section is mentioned three different times. Why? Because he's laying out the case for King Saul being born. So he's going to give out Benjamin on several occasions. So verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Now Benjamin begat Bilal his first, and Ashbel his second, and Ha-Ra'ah the third, and Nohah the fourth, and Remphah the fifth, and the sons of Behelah were Adar, and Gira, and Abahud, and Apishuel, and Naaman, and Ahua, and Gira, and Shifufan, and Huram. And these are the sons of Ehud. These are the heads of the fathers of the inhabitants of Geba. And they removed them to Manathah. And Naaman... And Ahah and Gerber, he removed them and begat Uzzah and Ahuhud and Shaharaim begat children in the country of Moab after he had sent them away. Hushim and Bahari were his wives. And he begat to Hudesh his wife, Jabab and Zimia and Mirsha and Mal. 
Malcam and Jehuz and Shashia and Mirma, and these were the sons and heads of the fathers. So we're going to stop there just because I want to stop there for a moment. <laughs> so here we have a number of people being listed, and it says he sent some of these away. These people have moved into different places because Benjamin's territory is toward the southwest of Israel, just outside, uh, just west of Judah. And we find here that he sent some of his people to Moab, and where, where some of his family went to. And Moab's on the east side of the, of the uh, Jordan River. And just below the two and a half tribes on the east side is Moab. And God told them, told Israel, don't attack Moab because they are brothers, even though they did not treat them nice. Now, technically, they were cousins, but we're going to leave it at brothers because that's the term that God used. Because Moab and Ammon were the descendants of Lot. When Lot was kicked out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he went up into the mountains. He planned to stay there with his daughters, and his daughters said, well, we're never going to get down to where the guys are. They got their father drunk and had children by him, and those became these mighty nations that are going to give Israel a hard time later on. Uh, from the incense, incense that was uh, put in. All right. Where did I leave off? Uh, okay, and the sons of Epaal were Eber and Misham and Shemed, and who built Ono and Lud with the towns thereof, and Bariah also and Shema, who were the heads of the fathers of the inhabitants of Ajalon, who drove away the inhabitants of Gath. So here we have a picture again. We have some victory from the Benjamites. They drove away the, the Philistines out of their land. And the Philistines, if you know your Bible, the Philistines were always a big problem to Israel. Uh, they are going to be problems, especially to the Benjamites and to the Ephraimites, because those are the two tribes that live right on their border. So verse 14, and Ahio, Shashak, and Jeremoth, and Zebediah, and Arad, and Ador, Adir, and Michael, and Ispa, and Joha, the sons of Bariah, and Zebediah, Zebediah and Meshulam, and Hezekiah, and Eber. So here we have another Eber. Eber is all over the all over the this this list. Uh, Ishmael, also, and Jezliah, and Jobab, the sons of Ilpaal, and Jachim, and Zichri, and Zamdi, or Zamdi, and Elianiah, and Zilthiah, and Eliel, and Adiah, Adiah, and Berariah, and Shimroth, the sons of Shimhai, and Ishpan, and Eber, and Eliel, and Abdon, and Zichri, and Hanan, and Hananiah, and Elam, and Antojethijah, and Ithodiah, and Penua, the sons of Shashak, and Shamshirai, and Shamshirai, Ah, and Athaliah, 
and Jairusiah, and Eliah, and Zichri, the sons of Jeroham. These were the heads of the fathers by their generations, chief men who dwelt in Jerusalem. So all of these people of the tribe of Benjamin that were just listed lived in Jerusalem and were going to be set up there. Uh, I am not sure. I believe these were all before David took over Jerusalem when, the, when it was owned by the uh, Jebusites. And these people lived there with them. Because David's going to take it over. David's going to make it the center of his kingdom. And by that time, most of the house of Saul had been wiped out. Because remember, David has years of civil war when two of the tribes make him king and the rest of the tribes make Saul king or Saul's descendants king. So there's years of civil war that is going to happen. Be, so while Saul's rest of Saul's descendants start getting killed off uh, because they always lose their battles is what the Bible tells us. Uh, okay, verse 33. And Ner begat Kish, and Kish begat Saul, and Saul begat Jonathan, and Malchishua, and Abinadab, and Ishbaal. And the sons of Jonathan were Meribaal, and Meribaal begat Micah. And the sons of Micah were Pithan, and Miklech, and Terah, and Ahaz. And Ahaz begat Jehoada, and Jehoada begat Alremeth, and Asmaveth, and Zimri, and Zimri begat Moza, and Moza begat Binael, Rapha was his son. And Elisa his son, and Azel his son. And Azel had six sons whose names were these Azrakim, Bacheru, Ishmael, Shereriah, Obadiah, Hanah. All these were the sons of Azel. And the sons of Eshek, his brother, were Ulam, his firstborn, Jeruhush the second, Elifedlet the third. And the sons of Ulam were mighty men of valor, archers, and many had many sons and sons' sons, and a hundred and a hundred and fifty. All these were the sons of Benjamin. All right. So here we have, and starting in verse 33, we finally get into the line of Saul. So we find Ker gives birth to Kish, and Kish gives birth to Saul. All right, and if you remember 1 Samuel, we have this whole thing of Samuel going out, taking, trying to find the donkeys for his father, Kish, that were lost, and he ended up coming across Eli, uh, Samuel, who anointed him king. Um, and so this is our story. And it says that Saul ended up giving birth to his oldest, Jonathan, and then it lists the rest of his sons. Jonathan is going to give birth to a whole bunch of sons as well. Now remember, David... And Jonathan have a very close relationship. They're very good friends. So much so that at one point, Jonathan gives David his royal, his royal cloak and his, and his sword and everything and says, you're going to be king. You, you can have this stuff. He goes, he doesn't want you to take it. And David finally told him, well, you know, for me to be king, you have to die. And, and Jonathan says, I know that. So Jonathan was all set to die so that David could have the throne 
And all he asked of David, take care of my, take care of my children. Don't, don't kill my children off. And later on, we'll find, we read that David went out and he found one of Jonathan's sons to be a Meshivatheth, to be able to honor and treat as royal, as a royal prince behind his children, but gave him a seat at the, at the royal table, gave him quarters in the, in the palace, and he fulfilled his promise to Jonathan. All right? That was their, the great love that they have. This was also the great part of the great hatred that Saul had because Jonathan was, knew that he was going to give up and Jonathan respected David and, and his father kept getting mad. Now, there was one case where he says, you son of an infidel, you know, don't you know that this guy is going to take your throne and you're being, you know, and, you know as he's trying to kill David, as Saul's trying to kill David. And Jonathan keeps warning David of what's, going, what's happening. Uh, so all of this goes on, and this is this list of children directly of Saul. And it's kind of interesting. It says that his men were mighty men of valor and archers. And what is one of our stories that we have is Jonathan practicing archery when David comes to see him. And he says, you know, tells his servant, you know, no, the arrows are way beyond you. And then we see that that entire family was a family of archers. You know, and I never really had noticed that until I saw this, you know, and then I started thinking of the different stories of archery in, in, that, in that potential section there. All right. Any questions as we're moving? I know I'm moving fairly fast through these names, but there's not a whole lot to, to go over on, on much of this. All right. Verse, uh, chapter 9. So all Israel was reckoned by genealogies, and behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, who were carried away into Babylon, for their transgression. So here we have Nehemiah or Ezra, whoever it is that says, all, I'm pulling these from various records. All right. Um, now, verse 2. Now, the first inhabitants that dwelt in their possession in the cities of Israel, the priest Levites and the Nethanims, and Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem dwelt the children of Judah and the children of Benjamin and the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. Uthai, the son of Amathud, the son of Am- Omri, the son of Imrim, the son of Bani, the son, and the brethren of Perez, the son of Judah, and of the Shilonites, Asahiah, the firstborn, and his sons, and the sons of Zerah were Jeruel, and their brethren, 690. One of the things you're going to find out if you want to see this list in another place, you go to the book of Nehemiah. Right now, he's listing the people that have returned from captivity to Jerusalem, from Babylon to Jerusalem to reestablish it. So we see this same general list in Nehemiah. And the sons of Benjamin, Shuhu, the sons of Meshuhalam, the sons of Hadavaviva, and the son of Hashanuah, and Ibniai, the son of Jehuatham, and Elah, and the son of Uzi, the son of Mikir, the son of Meshulam, the son of Shetha'ah, the son of Ruel, the son of Ibjanah, their brethren according to their genealogies, 956. All men were chief of their fathers in the house of their fathers. So here he's giving just a short list of the people that are returning to Jerusalem. Now, if you, read, if you went into Nehemiah and read this, it's a very sad thing. 
Cyrus tells the people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the temple. And a very small percentage of the Jewish people return back to the land. So much so that when they get there, they're supposed to rebuild Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a wreck. Remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar tore it down completely. No brick standing upon, no, no stone standing. Nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem. So all they did is they went all around Jerusalem and they, and they inhabited their land. And what did they do? They go, we need people to live in the capital. Jerusalem's the capital. Nobody is living in the capital. So they drew lots and one out of every 10 person was forced to move to Jerusalem. All right. So you picture this. You're, we're living here in Arizona and they're going, nobody wants to live in Phoenix. Now, why anybody wants to live in Phoenix? I have no idea anyway, but let's say nobody really wants to live in Phoenix, period. And they're going, Phoenix is the capital. We need people to live in Phoenix. So they do a lottery for all the people in Phoenix and say, okay, one in every 10 is going to move to Phoenix, whether you want to or not. And that's what happened to them on this situation. Nobody wanted to move to Jerusalem. And he said, no, we're going to make people come to Jerusalem. It is the capital. We need to have people living in the capital. And so this is the list of people that were, that were sent out that way. All right, now we look at the priest in verse 10. Uh, verse 10. And the priest, Jedidiah and Jehurim and Jehachim and Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshua, the son of Zadok, the son of, the son of Maharath, and the son of Ahitub, the ruler of the house of God, and Adaiah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Pushur, Pashur, the son of Makirajah, and Maasiah, the son of Adiel, the son of Jazirah, the sons of the son of Meshulam, the son of Mesh. Meshilemith, the son of Emer, and their brethren, heads of the house of the father, a hundred, a thousand seven hundred and sixty were very able men for the work of the service of the house of God. So of the tribe of Levi, of, of, of uh, actually Aaron, we only had 1,070 of the priests return to Jerusalem where the temple was going to be. Now this is a really sad number because that's where they're supposed to be. These guys are all supposed to come back to work in the temple and a very small percentage of them return. And kind of picture this, you know, they've been waiting 70 years to return home and the people have gotten so comfortable in the world that nobody wants to return home. They all just say, well, we, we've got our businesses, we've got our homes, everything is going good. I don't want to go back and work hard. You can almost picture in the American West, when we were trying to move west, we had a number of people move, but a very small percentage of people moved west at first because they were real comfortable in the cities and, the, and everything, the established cities. Why go to the Wild West where everybody was crazy and shooting each other and, and fighting over land and everything when we can just stay in our town with our libraries and our, and our theaters and all of this? Why move? Why move? And that's kind of the way the, the Israelites were. We're happy. We've got a town. Why do we want to move to the wilds? Yes, it's home. Yes, it's the land God gave us. But we're happy where we're at. We've got our theaters. We've got our businesses. We've got everything. Everything is fine and, fine and smooth. And we're happy where we're at. 
and we see the very small number of people that returned. All right, verse 14 gives us a list of the Levites. And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, the son of Azrakam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Merai, and Bakpakar, and Ishif, and Gael, and Mataniah, the son of Mekah, the son of Zikri, the son of Asaph. And Obadiah, the son of Shimeiah, the son of Gilad, the son of Zerathun, and Berechiah, the son of Asa, the son of Elkanah, that dwelt in the villages of the Nephtolothites. And the porters were Shalom, and Achab, and Talmon, and Ahiman, and their brethren Shumla was their chief who hitherto waited on the king's gate eastward, and they were porters in the companies of the children of Levi. All right, so we're going to stop there for a moment. These are the Levites. The Levites, remember, are responsible. The the priests are responsible for making the sacrifices and taking care of the showbread and the altar and the the, uh, menorah and all that stuff. The Levites originally had a really big job. They helped out the priest. And when they were moving the tabernacle, they had their positions where one group handled all the interior stuff. They handled the altar and the menorah and everything, and they had to carry everything. Another group carried the tents and all the coverings. And they, those things were big tents, so they, they had carts. And the other ones carried the, the wood that supported all this and the and the bases and everything. Once they got into Jerusalem and the temple and the tabernacle was built, was moved to Jerusalem, now they were given new jobs. And if you know, we gave the name Asaph, and if you know the name Asaph, Asaph was a singer. And his, his children all became singers in the temple. All right? And he wrote many of the Psalms. You'll see his name all over the Psalms. Asaph wrote this song. Asaph wrote that song. And so he was one of the singers, and we, so we see this going on. And then these guys were given guards at the gates of the temple. And verse 19, And Shalom, the son of Korah, the son of Ebesheth, the son of Korah, and his brethren of the house of his father, the Korahites, which were over the work of the service, keepers of the gates of the tabernacle, and their fathers being over the host of the Lord were keepers of entry, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was the ruler of them in times past, and the Lord was with him. And Zechariah, the son of Mishamiah, was porter of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. All these were the chosen to be porters of the gates, were 212. And they reckoned their genealogies and their villages, whom David and Samuel the seer did ordain in their set offices. So they and their children had the oversight of the gates of the house of the Lord, namely the house of the tabernacle by their wards. And in four quarters were the porters set east, west, north, and south. And their brethren, which were in the villages, to them came after seven days from time to time with them. For the Levites and the four chief porters were in their set offices and were over the chambers and the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And they lodged around the house of God because their charge was upon them. And they opened thereof every morning 
pertained to them, and certain of them had charge of the ministering vessels and that they would bring in and out by, by the tall. And some of them were also appointed to oversee the vessels and all the instruments of the sanctuary, the fine flour, the wine, the oil, and the frankincense, and the spices. And some of the sons of the priest made the ointment of the spices. I'm going to stop there because I want to talk about that spices. All right, so we looked at here. Phineas and Eliezer, these should be names that are somewhat familiar. Uh, Phineas is one of the sons of Aaron. Eliezer was his son. They become the high priest and the next high priest afterwards. So you had Aaron, Phineas, Eliezer. And they were the rulers over the tabernacle. And so their line continues to be all through time to be that ruler of it. And then he says, the rest of these Levites are given charge over the doors. All right? So they were the guard. They were to make sure nobody just snuck in. You had to come in the right way. Nobody could get into the tabernacle. Nobody was supposed to go into the holy place. And to make sure that nobody did, they posted guards. All right? Why would they do that? Well, everybody knew that that was God's house and they were afraid to go in, but there would always be somebody inquisitive. All right? There's always people that say, well, I just wonder what's in there. All right? And eventually would go in and then end up struck dead and they didn't want that to happen. So they put guards to say nobody could get in. Remember when they were at Sinai, they put a fence around all around Sinai and Moses was said, put guards at the foot of the mountain so nobody breaks forth and dies by coming, coming up to me. Moses said, well, who's going to come up to you? And God says, guard Make, make your guard. God knows the hearts of people. He knew there would be at least one person that was foolish enough to try to go see, go see God. Out of curiosity, out of stupidity, not, not non-belief, whatever it might be, God says, put the guard there. So there were guards around the tabernacle to make sure that people did not go where they weren't supposed to, to go. All right? Uh, now it says here that these were reckoned in verse 22 by the genealogies of the, in their villages by David and Samuel the seer. So David, and obviously by appointment there was some order when Samuel was, was in control of the tabernacle. And David gets credit for organizing them in 24 different groups to serve for, for their life. And because there started to be so many of them and without moving the tabernacle around there wasn't a whole lot of work for them to do overall. So David broke them up into groups and said, all right, for two weeks a year, of two weeks at a time, twice a year, you get to come and serve. So their job to work the temple or the tabernacle was twice a year for two weeks each. So four, four weeks a year, they would actually get to work at the tabernacle. The other times they spent at home teaching. Their job was to teach locally. So they would be the ones in charge of the synagogue and and teaching the word of God in their hometowns for those weekly and monthly meetings that people couldn't make it all, to, all the way to Jerusalem. Because if you didn't live near Jerusalem, it would be very hard to go to get taught. And you had to go to Jerusalem three times as a male three times a year, no matter where you lived on it. The rest of the time you went to your local Levite who would teach you God's word. So hopefully you had a good good Levite that believed God's word teaching you. And not all of them were. 
All right? Some of them didn't even want to be teachers. They, they, were, they were born in the tribe that had to be the teachers and the ministers of God, and some of them didn't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, almost like the caste system of, of India. You're born into a certain place, that's what you do. And it wasn't so long ago that that's the way it was in most of the, most, even the Middle Ages. You were born to a family that did black, uh, blacksmithing. You were, at least the oldest one especially, was going to be a blacksmith. And you learned to be a blacksmith. And if you were lucky, you might get released from your family business to go do something that you wanted to do. All right? Uh, so these were the ones that would, would do that. And it says there in verse 25, And the brethren of their villages were to come after seven days from time to time with them. So the chiefs got to stay at the temple all the time. And then the rest of their families came one week at a time to serve at the tabernacle. And it became an honor. It really did become an honor because there's got to be so many of them that it was an honor just to go to the temple. And if you really got a chance to do the work of something beyond just cleaning and, and all of that, it was really wonderful. Case in point, Zechariah in John the Baptist's father. It said he was old, and, it, and we believed at that time that he went in to light the, light the uh, candles and make sure the wicks were all changed was the first time that he had ever been chosen to go in. And they would cast lots and pick people by lot. And so you have hundreds and hundreds of you. You get to serve two week, uh, four weeks a year in two different groups the chances of being picked were very slim. So it was an honor to finally get a chance. Oh, I get to actually go inside now and serve something that I have been trained all my life how to do and never had a chance to do and probably had trained others to do it even though he had never actually gone in and done it. And so this is where it starts out. They were given seven days, seven days at a time to go serve. All right. Then there were certain of them that were given ministering. There were some, some of them that were given to oversee the vessels. That meant that they had to clean the, the pots, and the forks, and the hooks, and all of that. And then there were some that were responsible to keep the wine, and the flour, and the oil, and the frankincense. And then here in verse 30, And some of the sons of the priest made the ointment of the spices. Now, if you don't know what that means, you go back to Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 through 33. There was a special ointment, an oil and a perfume, however you want to put it, that was made for sacrifices. And we're not, if you want to read the exact recipe, go to, go to that. And God said that this was so special that it was not to be used by anybody else to make a perfume. So what it smells like, I don't know. I have not made that perfume and don't want to. But apparently God says, this is my perfume. Nobody else gets this perfume. And it's on penalty of death. All right? Anybody who makes this would be killed. And I think the one that's going to kill them is God. This was his scent. His oil. This is the oil that they would use in the temple. This was the oil that they used in the tabernacle. And it had, I think it was four ingredients on it, and it was in particular order. And it was to be made only by the priest for use in, the temp, in, in service to God. And so here he's reiterating, 
the priests are responsible for making this oil. And I'm sure it was one of those things that went, the recipe went from father to son through that, through that particular group of people. And he's reiterating the fact that it is made by priests. And Ma, Matithaya, the son, one of the Levites, who was the firstborn of Shumla, the Korahite, had an office set over the things that were made in, in the pans. And other of the brethren, the sons of Kohathites, were over the showbread to prepare it on every, in every Sabbath. And these are the singers, the chief fathers of the Levites, who remaining in the chambers were free, for they were employed in that work day and night. All right, so here we have some more people that are listed. We have the firstborn of the Kohites. And remember, the Kohathites have a very small number of people because Kohath is, was one of them that rebelled against Moses and was, was destroyed. He had a very small people, a group of people. And it says, they were in charge of the things that were made in the pans. What were made in the pans? Part of the sacrifices. Because out of the sacrifices, the priest would get a portion of them. And remember, we've talked about the sacrifices in the, in the beginning. We always kind of think as Gentiles, well, they just took the whole sacrifice and burnt it. Most of the time, that was not true. In the sacrifice, a, about a third of it or a quarter of it would be burnt to God, including the innards and the fat and all of this would be burnt to God. The priest would get a certain section of it. Usually the shoulder, the shoulder of the big animal would belong to the priest. And a lot of it went back to the individual to, to be, be used by them in a Thanksgiving offering, depending on which offering it was. But the part that was given to the priest, we find out later on, was put in a big pot to be boiled. And then they would come with some hooks and everything and pull, pull meat out. So if you didn't like boiled meat, you were in trouble as a priest. <laughs> and I'm not a big fan of boiled meat, so I would be in trouble as a priest. Uh, so these Kohites were the ones that were responsible for the pots. They were being cooking at constant times and having new meat thrown into them all the time and being discarded. And then he goes, and these were the singers, the chiefs of the fathers of the Levites, though, who remaining in the chambers were free for they were employed in that work day and night. The only work they had to do was sing. Hopefully they were good singers. Uh, but they did not have to clean. They did not have to do the, the offerings. They did not have to skin the offerings. They did not uh, clean the ashes. Their job was a simple one, if, as long as they liked to sing. But you know, how hard is it sometimes to sing? If you've ever been a singer in a choir or something, and the, the, the statement goes, the show must go on, and you've got a sore throat, you don't feel like singing, you've been singing every day that week, and you're not feeling like singing, they had no other job. Their job was to sing whether they felt like it or not. And I can't imagine that would, would that be like, you know, sometimes you're not in the mood to worship, and you're singing worship songs. And hopefully you got into a worship spirit after singing the songs for a while. But note that it says they did this work day and night. In the temple, David had singers singing 24 hours a day. So anytime you came into the temple, you would hear praises to God being sung. And verse 44, these chief fathers of the Levites were the chief throughout their generations who dwelt at Jerusalem. And in Gibeon dwelt the father of Gibeon, 
Jehurel, whose wife's name was Mahaka, and his firstborn was Abaddon and Zur and Kish and Baal and Kur and Nadab and Gedor and Ahihu and Zechariah and Mikloth, and Mikloth begat Shimeah, and they also dwelt with their brethren at Jerusalem over against their brethren. And here we go again with this, this line of Saul. And Kur begat Kish, and Kish begat Saul, and Saul begat Jonathan, and Machashua, and Abinadab, and Ishbaal. And the sons of Jonathan were Meribaal, and Meribaal begat Michal, and the sons of Michal were Pithan, and Mikla, and Terah, and Ahaz, and Ahaz begat Jerah, and Jerah begat Alimeth, and Asmaveth, and Zimri, and Zimri begat Musa, and Musa begat Binaah, and Rephaiah his son, and Eliasah his son, and Azel his son. And Azel had six sons whose names were these, Azrimka, Bath-eru, and Ishmael, and Shedariah, and Obadiah, and Hannah. These are the sons of Azel. So again, we see Saul's line being given three times in the last three chapters. Why? Because Saul is pretty important. Right? He is the first king. He is going to be rejected by God because of his sin, but he's still important. And to have overlooked him would have been an insult to the tribe of Benjamin. This is the tribe of Benjamin's great claim to fame. They had the first king of Israel. All right? And if you overlooked them, then there would have been this whole battle of why did you overlook our tribe? You know, why did you overlook Saul? Granted, he was cast out by God, but that did not mean that he isn't important. And this is what ends up happening in many places when they rewrite history. They would, if they were just to take and rewrite history, they would have totally written Saul out of this. You know, Saul, you're a bad guy. You, you tried to kill David. You rejected God. You did a lot of bad for the nation. And rewrite him out. That is not God's way of giving history. God gives the bad and the good on history. And it's very important because if we forget the bad in history, we will, re, we will redo all the bad things that happened. We're going to redo them anyway because that's man's nature. But if, at least if we remember them, we might be able to stay away from the past. And God always will put the good and the bad. When he gives David, the greatest king of Israel, whom God calls his friend, all right, it shows us all the bad things that David did as well. And says, David wasn't the perfect man, but God, by his grace and his mercy, loved David. And this is good news for us. When we disobey God, knowing that we deserve nothing but heartache and trials, and God gives us grace. That is great for us to be able to understand. God's grace. There are so many Christians that are constantly out there trying to earn God's favor. They'll accept that I'm saved by grace. And then they start acting like they're kept by works. And they'll go out and do all these good things. And, and it's fine. We should be doing good things for God. But if I'm doing it out of guilt, 
or out of trying to please God and show God how good I am and that I deserve something, we're wasting our time. And too many of us, including myself at times, have fallen into this trap. You know, and that's when we might say something to God like, God, you know, why are all these bad things happening to me? I've been doing all these good things for you. You know, God, why am I suffering? I give in my tithes, I go to church, I, I, I'm teaching, I'm, I'm being part of this team, I'm being part of that team, I'm cleaning the church. God, why are bad things happening to me? If you have ever felt that way, what are you saying to God? God, I know I'm saved by grace, but you should be treating me special because I'm doing all these good things for you. And God says it's all by grace. And this is the thing we must always remember. Everything about our walk with God is by grace. Because I'm a sinner. If I do things, if I'm doing things for God to see reward, then my service is already tainted by the wrong attitude. If I'm serving God because I'm crucified and I'm letting him work through me, then I can be blessed and my service is no longer tainted because it's God doing the work by grace. And this is what we've always got to remember. We are saved by the finished work of Christ. Jesus died on the cross and we can do nothing to make God like us or love us more. Because Jesus paid the debt. Why do I serve him? Just out of pure love. God, I love you so much. I want to serve you. Not because I'm trying to say, God, you're going to love me more. Now, our marriages should be the same way. When we're married, we should be not trying to please our spouse to get them to love us more. Now, unfortunately, we're human and they're human. So sometimes that works. But if our motivation is to get them to love us because we're doing good things for them, we're going to be sorely disappointed because most of the time they're not going to react the way we want them to. Matter of fact, their selfishness and our selfishness is going to want more. Well, I really like what you've been doing. Give me more. Not, well, let me give you everything back that you've been giving me. No, give me more because of the selfishness of our flesh. And this is what we kind of look to God. God, if I do enough good things, you're going to love me and you're going to, I'm going to do all these good things so that you'll love me and give me more benefit. And God says, no, I've given you everything when, I, when Jesus died. The finished work of Christ wins our salvation and makes God love us completely. Now, out of his love, he allows us to go through hard times to prove, do we love him? And that's what all of that's about. Are we going to show God, I trust you, I love you, no matter what happens in my life? God, you've got a plan, and I'm going to trust you. Too often, we back off and say, God, you're not worth following. All these bad things, I did all these good things for you, and look at all the bad things that have happened. And we back off instead of drawing closer to him. And we draw closer to him, then he brings blessing in that we can't even begin to imagine. And there are blessings. And this is, this is why the prosperity gospel sounds so good to us. Because there are promises that when we serve God that he will bless. But it is not a demand that I do this and God must do this. It is God's grace that he gives me the blessings he gives me. Not because of what I do, but just because he says, here is my reward to you. And this is where it gets hard when you look at somebody and go, God, they're not seeming to do anything for you. Why are they getting blessed? 
And that gets hard, and I understand how hard that can get. You know, when you're serving God and you're doing all these things and you're watching somebody get blessed who hasn't done anything apparently from your point of view, it can get hard to say, God, I don't understand. This isn't fair. And you know what I always told my kids and my dad always told me? Who said life was going to be fair? And you know what? In this lifetime, God's going to do many things that don't seem fair to us. Now, the reward in heaven will be where the fairness comes. God is going to be completely fair and we get to heaven by grace and then he gives us the blessings that we have earned by letting him work in our life. The finished work gets us into heaven. My desire to let God work through me gives me my blessings. All the things I do in my flesh do not get me rewards in heaven because that's all tainted by my desires. But what I let God do I will be blessed for. That will be the eternal. That will be the stuff that doesn't burn up. All right. We have reached the end of the genealogies. Thankfully for my sake. <laughs> All right. So let's close in prayer. Next week we will be looking at the death of Saul. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for how much you love us. And Lord, we thank you that we've trudged our way through the genealogies and, and looked at some of the great people of your of the Bible and seeing the, seeing the lifespans and, the, and we just ask you to bless this. Give us a wonderful day in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.